When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the only major UK airport owned solely for community benefit. The airport is the major employer in the region, supporting more than 27,000 jobs, and its contribution to local charities are 20 times more per passenger than any other UK airport. To find out more about the UK's most socially impactful airport, visit lutonrising.org.uk. Podcasts isn't working. Strike up the band. Theresa May once lent me a towel. Harold Wilson, he had his son at the same school as me. Clement Attlee. When I was 11 years old and I was introduced to him. Well, at the end of the Second World War, you were 11. Was... Yes, here we are again. It's How to Win an Election with me, Matt Chorley, uh, joined by uh, Peter Manson. What are you putting? You're putting a face already, Peter. Just I only need to introduce you. Peter Manson, Daniel Finkelstein and Policy McKenzie uh, are all here with a special half term. Uh, you uh, answering the questions of our of our many army of listeners. Have you, have, you be, have you met any of our army of listeners in the flesh? I met one last night. Did you? I got out of a cab. Uh, last evening, I was going somewhere, and just as I was shutting the door, he said, "Oh, by the way, Peter, love your podcast." Wow! I met someone in the lift earlier here at Times headquarters. Yeah, that was the chief. Doesn't really count if it's somebody who works here. <laughs> well, but she still recognised me. Yeah. Uh, in the lift, she said, "I'm enjoying the podcast." Great. And then it turned out we used to work together, but I didn't remember. Right, Danny. Well, I've had a lot of it actually. I can't remember specific incidents now. I'm, the pressure of, the, of it is like it's all gone out of my head. But I'm I'm really quite very happy with the number well, of people. Who a friend of mine, be listening. A friend of mine who used to work for me, a very good guy. He said it's really getting better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hate those. They, that sound, that's one of the things that sounds like a compliment, but is in fact an insult. Has anyone ever said that about your column? <laughs> <laughs> really, really getting there. Well, you said it was somebody who used to work for you. Was it Tony Blair? <laughs> Gordon Brown Gordon. Really ridiculous. <laughs> well if you want to get in touch with questions uh, you can email us howtowin at thetimes.co.uk and if you see Danny out and about do go and say hello and tell him you like the podcast so he doesn't feel left out uh, now um, let's kick off with because we know that everyone loves the theme tune uh, and we've previously had people who've uh, played it while they've been out doing Christmas carols. We had someone who could do the uh, How to Win Election theme on their head. Well, now we've had this from Lizzie. Hi, all. This is Lizzie from Manchester. I'm a big fan, especially of Peter. 
My sister Emily and I have long imagined that O Fortuna would begin to play whenever Lord Mandelson enters a room, but of course it's now clear that Peter is a pussycat. I only recently discovered this most excellent podcast, so I'm working my way back through older episodes that I missed, and I just heard a supremely talented gentleman playing your theme tune on his head, so I assumed that you would also like to hear me gargling it. Much love, keep up the super work. So we'd all like to hear Lizzie gargling the How to Win an Election theme, wouldn't we? Here we go. This has made my day. (laughs) That is fantastic. Oh, Lizzie. Well done, Lizzie. Um, Can she do O Fortuna as well? But I was thinking that for people who aren't familiar, if we've got O Fortuna. Yeah, I could definitely see Peter Madison entering every room to this. (laughs) (laughs) Peter coming down the stairs of a morning. When um, no more, unfortunately. Once upon a time. No. When I was just a junior researcher and uh, Michael Howard was the leader of the Conservative Party, we used to uh, hum the Darth Vader theme tune every time we walked past him <laughs> in Parliament. But you walked past him? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. I mean, usually once we'd passed him. So just, like, from that kind of just past his eye line, yeah. Darth Vader music. I was quite jealous originally when she said that she was particularly fond of Peter, but then when she did that gargling, I wasn't so jealous. <laughs> I think most of your fans are a bit like that, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you see Daddy in the street, do go up and gargle at him. Uh, uh, before we do some uh, questions that people have been sent in, it seems that Keir Starman's been listening to the podcast, Peter, because you told him to drop the £28 billion, and now he has. <laughs> um, all, all I know is that it's as well to get ahead of the curve in these matters. <laughs> if only he had done. <laughs> get ahead of the curves just to explore all that unexploded ordnance that's mm. lurking just below the surface and make sure that it's removed before it goes off on in your face in, in an election campaign. I mean, Great Mandelson principle. Fine. He is still going to become Prime Minister at the end of the year, but he only had one policy <laughs> and now he's dropped it. Um, you know, you might have thought it through a little bit before. I, I have been in this position, you know, I accept because the Conservative Party under William Hague advanced the tax guarantee and then realised it, it wouldn't it wouldn't work. And in those circumstances, the best thing to do is probably to drop it rather than to go into an election doing it. But I think it does raise some questions, um, which maybe Labour doesn't have to answer to win, but it certainly will have to answer to govern w- about what it is that Keir Starmer really thinks. And I... and you know, where he is uh, and where his team is. So, you know, there was... You're not going to come old... out with where is the plan, are you? That Sunak line that he... Oh, I, I, look, the reason, they've, every look other... the reason they've come up with that um, question is because they clearly know that that's what the focus groups ask. It's, it's, it's Labour's one weakness, the thing that might soften their vote. In you know, as you know, I think that Labour win the election. I just said, but I, you know, but I do think that if you're the Conservative Party, of course you'll press on that issue. And that exact phrase comes out of focus groups, so of course they press on it. That's just professional campaigning. It's interesting that you know Jeremy Hunt said uh, on Twitter, it, it, well, or whatever it's called, you know, that no, he's uh, called Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> today but, uh, he said oh after however many years in opposition all Labour can do is copy the Conservative Party on economic policy you think well hang on isn't that the Keir Starmer line it's, it, they've got that, that is right that there is that attack that where's the plan 
But I think the Conservative Party, again, is in such a tangle that they've jumbled that up with the only plan you've got is the same as our plan, which is no plan not at really all, very actually. scary. <laughs> it was the same problem with New Labour, New Danger, the campaign in 97. The, the Conservative Party could never, you know, was a lot of the time sort of saying the danger is they're copying us and you think well why is that why would that be a danger <laughs> so you're right i think i think for the conservative party to land this they'll have to be quite disciplined i think actually to be fair because i've been very critical of some of the campaign things that i like the party conference strategy they have been pretty relentless about de- about the 28 billion repeating it over and over again until so, and labor has under this kind of pressure it has sort of buckled on it um and though by itself, this is not enough to change the to change the election result. It doesn't help Keir Starmer's leadership ratings, which are one of the things that matter. I suspect we'll find it's a it's a rounding error. Most people will not have noticed he had the policy. Most people won't notice that he's abandoned it. But it's certainly, you know, it's not the uh, episode of his uh, opposition leadership. He'll look back on with the greatest fondness. In the 1980s, uh, when I started off in this lark, I had a rule. I had a rule. This business we call show. <laughs> Politics, <laughs> campaigns, how to win an election. Um, I had a rule which said, you know, when something happens to you and some great Tory piece of artillery bombardment opens up in front of you and you're momentarily dazed and confused as to, you know, how to react to it, I said, if in doubt, say nout, but not for long. <laughs> and... Mr. Starmer and his team seem to have applied half that rule. <laughs> if in doubt, say now, which is right. You can marshal the facts, you work out what your policy is, make sure it's joined up, and then nibble, nimbly uh, articulate it. But if you if you delay, you'll find yourself dragged halfway around the stadium behind the Tory chariot, you know, before you open your mouth. And it, it just looks terrible. So I do agree they were right to take their time to sort out the policy. Uh, I just think it could have been done a little quicker and with a little bit more nimbly. Is there also a question about where power lies in the Labour Party? Because this has essentially come about as a result of a cabinet, shadow cabinet split. That you've got Ed Miliband and, and some of the ones who liked the green stuff and thought it was a very important thing, and you've essentially had the shadow chancellor. Who, who, who were they exactly? Let's have their names. <laughs> <laughs> the shadow chancellor uh, and and her new shadow team down jones as well have led the charge on we should drop it and in the end keir starmer who only f- a few days before dropping it went on the radio and said it was went on times radio and said it was desperately needed it does feel like keir starmer's not really in charge of his own shadow cabinet well you've always got to hold together a coalition of different opinions there will always be a chancellor or a shadow chancellor saying we shouldn't overpromise when it comes to spending money and people representing the individual departments saying, yes, we should. (laughs) Uh, Because actually it's much easier to do policy that involves spending lots of money than other kinds of policy about, you know, regulatory change and structural reforms. That's sort of boring, right? Nobody gets out of bed for that. The the $28 was always quite weird because it's such a strange number. (laughs) And, And... and of course, what matters is the destination. What matters is what it's for, which is green investment. And Labour is still saying that they are committed to uh, cleaning up the power grid, decarbonising the power grid by by 2030. And instead of choosing a number and saying, we'll spend that, they're going to try and get there, leveraging private finance, as Peter was talking about uh, last time, public finance, whatever it takes in order to get there. Of course, 
The problem is that you can't guarantee the policy success if you're not willing to guarantee the mechanism. And if those fiscal rules do actually impinge on their ability to achieve their investment goals, then they're in trouble. Mm -hmm. But but that none of that's relevant to winning an election. That's about how you run a country. You can't, you can't. What they've done though is try to abolish the cost of the policy without abol- abolishing the policy. So yeah. I, I, I just don't think. I think that's a little biggest... unfair, Danny. They've decided to go more slowly and not to, for example, inflate well, everyone's homes as quickly as they say. <laughs> so the, the the amount. So I, I I just think the the other question I would you know I, I'm sure the other rule you would agree with Peter is when you do revisit it you've got to then it's a bit like when you have a scandal you've got to get it all out right and there's no point getting half out I I sort of feel they've got half out from this policy so I I'd be interested to see whether this manoeuvre even works um, and whether. You know, they've actually, in yeah. fact, executed a full U-turn. U-turns I, I, are very, very difficult to execute in uh, politics. I, I remember Dennis Healy saying to me in the 1980s, he said, Peter, he was actually talking to Neil Kinnock in front of me, and he said, you know, there's nothing wrong uh, with U-turns as long as you're turning in the direction the public wants. And I think in this case, in a choice between saving their faces on the one hand and Labour's entire fiscal credibility on the other, they've chosen the fiscal credibility. That counts for more with the public. They have U-turned in the direction the public will want. But let's be clear, if you're going to do a U-turn... Say it's a U-turn. Don't do a well, U-turn and then pretend it isn't. Out, as I've got the press release <laughs> here, as they, uh, they put out, uh, Labour announces plans to invest in Britain's future. Well, they are going to invest in Britain's future. <laughs> it's like nothing. I thought it was going to say nothing you, has changed. But, but I'll tell you, but, I te- but nothing has changed, as Theresa May said. But there's a j- difference between public investment and private investment. Oh, let's not get bogged down you know, again, let, 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 let's not Let's not <laughs> dwell on the facts here, Matt. <laughs> Let's just gloss over and... <laughs> Come on, let's be fair to Ed Miliband. Um, it's, a, it's, a sad, it's a sad time for Ed Miliband. Our, our thoughts are with him. OK, let's move on to uh, some questions that uh, listeners have sent in. This is from Tristan. He says, my question is as follows. Following Boris Johnson's victory in the 2019 election, many journalists and pundits spoke of a political realignment as traditional Labour voters voted Tory for the first time. However, with the prospect of Labour now regaining the majority of those seats, how is it how reasonable is it to call Johnson's 2019 electoral winning coalition a realignment and not just a minor blip in those traditional Labour heartlands? And then he goes on to say, PS, loving the show and thank you to everyone's hard work in making it happen, but we don't we don't want to dwell on the praise. Danny, blip or realignment? I think it's too early to tell. Um, I, I did think that when they won those seats, you know, one of, what the Tory party has been trying to do is win a whole load of new seats and to some extent change its message to achieve that and keep a very wide coalition together. And I always wondered whether that was really possible, even though it succeeded against Jeremy Corbyn and with the background of Brexit in 2019. Uh, so I, I think that uh, it's too... Uh, the fact that it's gone back this time is an indication that, that maybe that thesis was correct. But I wouldn't be sure. Once you've loosened the attachment these places have to to always being Labour seats, it, it, they probably won't go back to the exactly the pattern they had before. But an awful lot depends on the decisions that are taken now. My, my view is, in, you know, about 100 years ago, um, 
Baldwin sort of ushered the Labour Party into power, usher deliberately so the Conservatives could fight a force that was ideologically and demographically more limited than the Liberal Party in reach. And he succeeded in doing that. And what we may be about to see is the reversal of that. The Tories will win sometimes, and sometimes they will get some of these seats back and have a majority, but they will not be the natural party of government. That depends, however, on the sort of victory Keir Starmer wins and then how he interprets that victory and what sort of leadership he provides. So I think there are too many questions that we don't know the answer to to be able to to estimate this. Polly? Nothing is for certain or forever in politics. And, you know, Danny always reminds us that it's leadership that matters we don't know who the next leader of the Conservative Party yeah. will be. You know, we, we, we sort of assume that Rishi Sunak will, will leave office and that there will then be a tussle for the heart and soul of the Conservative Party. Will that result in a leader who tries to put together a coalition which is more like the, the Leave Coalition, which uh, Boris Johnson built up, uh, and take on reform and, uh, uh, I guess, working-class votes, northern votes... Or, or will it be a, a, a leader who wants a more of a one-nation direction for the Conservative Party? It, it seems to me that it's that next leader who will create a certain amount of path dependency about, shall we call it, the blippishness of <laughs> Boris Johnson. Uh, you know, blimpishness, which is a sort of well, he's quite blimpy thing. too. Quite but blimpy. Do, like, if, if if you, I mean, basically, if you get another leader of the Conservative Party who's a bit like Boris Johnson, it's more likely that that's where the Conservative Party will move to. And as one party moves into a certain amount of territory, the winning coalition for the other party shifts as well. And so Labour starts to pick up different sorts of votes, different sorts of, of voters. The Conservative Party it moves, you know, to the reform agenda. Then there are kind of middle class, uh, uh, middle income kind of groups that Labour can probably pick up much more easily. What do you think, Heather? Well, speaking as somebody who once represented a red wall Labour heartland seat in the northeast of the country, I would say that what happened in 2019 was not a realignment, but it was certainly more than a blip. And the reason I say it was more oh, than a third way. The re- <laughs> reason I say it was more than a blip is because that sort of movement and fluidity and volatility amongst voters had started in our constituencies long before 2019. I mean, in the 1960s, 50% of the electorate would say that they are firmly attached to one party or another. The equivalent question would be answered now by about 9 to 15% rather than 50 So, you know, electoral currents and patterns have been completely uh, disrupted. I mean, once upon a time, you could say, well, Labour vote uh, was defined by class and geography to to a great extent that's why we built up all these mountains of votes in in northern england um, it, now it's not class class identity and solidarity has sort of evaporated uh, amongst uh, voters now the differences between voters or well, their voting patterns rather are defined more by age and educational uh, qualification which is why labor is piling up you know mountains of frankly useless votes in cities and university towns where you know the population is now overwhelmingly relatively young 
and university educated uh, but we are losing our foothold somewhat amongst older uh, uh, voters less educationally qualified not so much in cities but in towns and that's what was reflected in the great brexit vote in 2019 yeah, yeah, people voted for you know two drivers two reasons in 2019 one was to get brexit done because they were fed to the back teeth of the whole subject and secondly to vote against jeremy corbyn who could you know who could be surprised uh, at that now those <laughs> th those two drivers are no longer relevant they no longer apply that's why i think johnson's coalition has broken up and that's why we're not going to see a repeat of history well, that was a great question, Tristan, to which uh, we took a long time to say we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, up next, we'll have some more questions, including how hard work is a general election? What do the panel think of the civil service? What happens with exit polls? And what did Polly say about us when she went on with Jane and Fee? Uh, we'll do that next on how to win an election. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Yes, this is How to Win an Election with me, Matt Jolly, joined by Peter Madison, uh, Daniel Finkstein and Polly McKenzie. We're doing a listener's question special because we get so many and we never get uh, through them because they keep talking. Uh, so uh, if you want to send us a question, email us howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. This one is from Brian in Glasgow. Hi, Matt. Big fan of the podcast. Whenever there's a rumour of a snap general election... Journalists seem to get nervous as it will cancel all of their upcoming plans and holidays. So my question is, for those involved in fighting and covering a general election, how much extra work is involved? Is it late nights, seven days a week? Please note, my question is intended to determine how much schadenfreude I should expect to feel during the next election campaign, as I happily listen to how to win an election without actually having to work on one. So, how much work, more work is it from a 
journalists uh, or a campaigner's um, uh, perspective. Danny, given that you've done both. Yeah, when I was uh, working for the Conservative Party in 1997, I had to have a flat only a few yards from Conservative Central Office in order that I could sleep somewhere. Uh, and that was seven days a week. I went home once because a man s- started ringing my home threatening to kill me um, after I'd exposed some Labour policy on <laughs> and been credited with it on television. And, um, and so then I had to go home. Uh, but then I came back to the office and I stayed there um, you know, round the clock. So you have these late night briefings that let's say you're working for the prime minister, the prime minister goes out on tour, then you want to brief them when they come back. And then the next morning, these press conferences start, you have to start again. And everyone, I would think everyone's doing that. And certainly, um, you know, preparing for the general election, I started to get fit but much fitter than I'd been before, just in order to get through it. Uh, It's very important that you get organised you know the sort of diet of everyone I, I remember this big thing we were coming to the close to this massive massive defeat but the biggest problem for the party chairman was that the canteen that was serving staff was emitting a very strong smell of sausages <laughs> that, that that dominated the hall of central <laughs> office and he regarded as completely unprofessional and i remember passing by as the, you know this we were sort of 25 percent in the polls and watching brahma when he talked the air conditioning man through where he thought the sausage smell was uh, coming i suppose from. that's what you call you know focusing on the things you can control <laughs> exactly. yeah um this question reminds me because the thing about cancelling of holidays because i suppose we do know there's going to be an election this year, and um, Rishi Sunak says it's going to be the end of the year. So it's unlike the last two elections, which have been sprung us to snap elections. And I've just looked it up, and I've only ever described him as a very senior uh, person. But in 2017, I, I found a message. I texted Gavin Williamson, who I think was then, what was he, Chief Whip, and said, if you have an election on May the 4th, it'll ruin my two weeks at Disney World over Easter. And he replied, can I reassure you, your holiday will not be ruined. I will deliver on that promise to you and your family. And I said, no U-turn. He said, it's me making the promise. They are worth more than others. Wow. And I was awoken very early one morning while I was in Florida (laughs) to my phone exploding with the news that Theresa May had appeared outside Downing Street and called a general election. And I've held it against them ever since. But to be fair to Gavin Williamson, when she came out with her lectern in Downing Street, everyone said she's going to call an election. And I tweeted with great confidence, the great confidence has led me to this chair in a podcast on how to win an election as a political pundit. She's not going to call an election. (laughs) And this is because I had an extremely good source. And I won't tell you who the source is, but she was excellent. <laughs> that told me there wasn't going to be a general election. Uh, and how long I, in advance did Theresa say that to you? I, I obviously can't reveal who whether the source was, but it was it was it was before somebody went on holiday that yeah. may or may not know my source. Yeah. To be to be fair to Gavin Williamson, it's going to be a struggle, I think, to get that off the ground as a as a slogan. How much more work is it if you're inside a party policy? It's an extraordinary amount of work. I mean, and it is a twenty four seven operation. Not everybody is there all the time, but there will absolutely be an overnight shift doing media monitoring, who will then pass over to the main team, who are probably there at five in the morning, uh, and there till relatively late. I mean, we there were the sort of senior team who got taxis in and out. Nobody uh, in the Liberal Democrats has a flat that they can lend uh, 
staffers uh, in SW1. So unfortunately, it was more more of a taxis thing. But you know, there's there's food, there's breakfast and the lunch and then dinner because absolutely everybody is uh, working full on. I had a box of Curiously Cinnamon's uh, cereal. Oh, an excellent cereal, I'm sure you'll agree, on my desk oh, in 2010. Uh, oh, the Liberal Democrats over cereal. <laughs> <laughs> it, I'll, I'll get you some, Matt. Um, and I, I managed to eat them in like the first two days, whole box of cereal, just yeah. from sort of anxiety and stress. But it's it's the taking the leader and senior parliamentarians on tour is the thing that I think is the most kind of physically exhausting because, you know, it is flights and uh, tour buses that inevitably break down and then somebody has to get in the car and the logistics of that are just relentless. You have huge teams, mostly volunteers, sort of people who work, sort of junior people in PR agencies who've been sort of lent to the campaign for a, a few weeks or a few days. And putting together that tour and looking after the campaigners and most importantly your VIPs it's just absolutely brutal and incredibly expensive Peter it's it's completely grim (laughs) (laughs) grim from start to finish it is so taxing it is so intensive you if you're I mean I've only ever worked in a campaign as a director of it as a manager of it i hadn't worked in an election campaign before uh, centrally or nationally and so it was completely new to me in 1987 um, nobody ever thought that we were going to win we were engaged in a battle to come second that was the truth we started that campaign with the liberal democrats in second place in two polls so we were fighting for our survival the one thing i remember about it is these what one was when they were trying to present opinion poll findings and research to me it was all swimming around in front of my eyes i had absolutely no interest this was survival it's not sort of right and secondly is the exhaustion you know you if you're if you're running a campaign you have to be you have to have 360 degree vision of all that's going on around you and you have to work 24 7 no ifs or buts, you have to do that. And I tried during that campaign in 1987 uh, to sleep during the day. There was a sort of cupboard uh, <laughs> in the Labour Party uh, headquarters with a sort of camp bed uh, on it. And, you know, but I couldn't, you know, you, you was, I was so overwrought and it was so demanding and you, you just felt so wretched during the whole thing you know what was going to happen next it was really really difficult to sleep and i'm a very good catnapper uh, uh, actually uh, amongst my many other strengths and skills explains when he goes um, quiet during the podcast. <laughs> 1997 was a bit different that was more like a rolls royce uh, and sometimes it could go on to sort of auto drive I mean, it is it is obviously easier when you feel that you're going to win um <laughs> than i mean in 1997 obviously i was at the other end of that and Didn't it was no and you you were you were going literally you know one day then we had this situation with martin bell and you know we had, then had a man in a white suit running against the conservative candidate with the help of hutch out of starsky and hutch the whole thing i mean it was and this was every day it was yeah. something new every single day so there we go. I think the answer to that, Glasgow, uh, uh, Brian in Glasgow, is uh, lots of Schadenfreude is what you're going to have as you watch the election campaign unfold. I might, in my mind, as a journalist, I always think, well, there's only the same amount of space in the papers, but actually the papers just get bigger and they want it all to be politics. And obviously on the internet, there's a never-ending amount of space. But it'll be interesting to see what, ha- what it's like doing an uh, election on the radio because it's still only three hours. So we've just put no, no effort in at all. Uh, right, let's move on to another question. This one sent in by Bev. 
Hi Matt, Polly, Danny and Peter. We're going to miss you once the general election is over and the moving vans are outside number 10. So perhaps it's time to start planning your next podcast, How to Lose a Government, so you can all stay together. Until then, I've got another question for you. What do politicians really think of the civil service? Thanks for keeping us laughing. All the best, Bev. Lovely Bev there with a nice question. What do politicians really think of the civil service, Peter? I like the civil service. I always work very closely with the civil service. I know some people come in as ministers and they're incredibly sort of wary uh, of the unknown. I took exactly the opposite tack. I just assumed that the civil service were my allies before, you know, proven otherwise. And the great thing that civil servants do for ministers is is to prevent them doing stupid things. <laughs> it's really important, which is why Liz Truss went so disastrously wrong. The first thing she did on day one of her premiership was to fire her principal private secretary, fire her national security advisor, and instruct the Chancellor of the Exchequer to fire his permanent secretary. You know, she just didn't want to not take these people's advice. She wanted them out of the room uh, uh, altogether. And there was barely anyone left who either could or you know, had sufficient courage, you know, to tell her and her colleagues, you know, that they were doing dumb things. They were doing stupid it's, things. It's very interesting because uh, one of uh, an MP, well, I won't say who it was, but an MP, a, a senior MP, no, it wasn't, um, a senior <laughs> Conservative MP said they'd been having a conversation with Quasi Quateng, and they told me this about three or four days before Liz Truss became Prime Minister. And he said Quasi told me he was planning to fire you know, the top Treasury civil servants. And he said, I said to him, do you think that's altogether a wise idea, given that you're going to embark on some quite unorthodox and risky policies, Quasi? And uh, Quasi said, um, I, uh, I hadn't really thought of it like that. So it's a good point. I'll think about it, which he clearly <laughs> didn't. Well, if he did, he was overruled. And what about you, Polly? You're doing policy in number 10, because obviously the development of policy and the rollout of it you can't do single-handedly in the way that sort of bashing out a press release and comms, you can keep to quite a tight political team. Absolutely. I mean, policy is fundamentally connected to the civil service. But it is worth remembering. When I was a kid, I thought a civil servant was just somebody who had too much time on their hands and could appear on Going for Gold. Because you, like, there would always be a thing on quiz shows. that be like, I'm Bob and I'm a civil servant. I'd be like, what is that? <laughs> uh, but... And the thing is, it could be anything. They could well, work exactly. in a post office. They could that, be a spy. Not a post. Not the post office. Not the post office. If you don't know enough about institutional structures of the post office, I think realise the Lib Dems yes. took such a deep interest in the post yeah, office. Yeah, well, you know, it turns out they do. <laughs> but you know, the civil service is everybody who works in a tax office or in a job centre. It's the people who are staffing Ministry of Defence sites. Thousands and thousands of people. So, w- when we talk about the civil service in political debates, you, you're talking about basically about five thousand people who really work in policy development directly to ministers. Um, I think almost all of them are dedicated, hardworking, totally uh, totally responsive and flexible to the ministerial kind of democratic direction that they get, um, but also constrained by inconvenient things like reality and money and the law. And and I think what's, what's a real shame sometimes is that uh, what is experienced by ministers as civil service inertia is just that connection with reality. And and instead of being able to trust the civil service to be on their side, as the civil service 
broadly are, they, they, they just kind of get angry, take it out on them, and then you start a narrative about who's up and who's down and who's the good guys and who's the bad guys and the blob or whatever it might be. And actually that undermines your ability to work successfully with the civil service. But you do. I think you always do need political advisors, policy advisors, specialist people who can come in and be more of a catalyst. There's something about the permanence of the civil service, which does mean there's there's a preference for inertia and there's a preference for consistency. And so especially, I think, you know, with a new government coming in, you you do need to be able to leverage quite a lot of change quite quickly. And the habits and the culture and the practices of the civil service just take quite a long time to change. It's kind of a super tanker. Uh, Luckily, Keir Starmer hasn't got any policies left now, so there's no... That's true, that's true. There's nothing nothing that they need to worry about. So he should just appoint, I don't know, me and Peter, maybe Danny as well. We'll just just run everything. A government of all the talents. Yeah. Goats. Uh, Right, uh, we'll do some more questions. If you want to email us, email howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. Attach a voicemail if you want to, and you can hear yourself on the podcast. Let's get some more questions now. Uh, We've had a couple of questions on a similar theme. So Ben emailed in, said, Hello, Matt. How to win an election? Well, if you are Labour or other parties on the left, part of the answer is getting more young people voting. I am deeply interested in politics, but I only came to this in my late 30s. How does the panel think we can get more young people engaged in politics? And then uh, we've had, on a similar note, we've had a voice note from Russell. Oh, hello. I was wondering what the panel thought about the under 30s voter um, and how they're going to vote in the next 12 months. Um... I work a lot in the education sector and for the past 10 years I've I've chatted to students and they seem to have only known um, a Tory government, Brexit, lockdowns, a lot of uh, kind of eye-watering corruption and I can never really fathom where they're going to go and I'd be interested to know what the panel thought about that. Thank you. You know there's a received wisdom amongst many in politics that chasing the youth vote is as to fool's errand, that you're just chasing after fool's gold because at the end of the day they don't vote and many don't but i think it's a very dangerous stereotype uh, for politicians to parties uh, to to adopt uh, i think that uh, we don't actually give young people a very good deal in this country where most of our policies our resource allocation our national health service are all skewed in the direction of looking after older people youngsters can't get on the housing ladder anymore there's not even a first rung for many of them housing is in such short supply Um, and I think uh, you know we can't just say well young people aren't interested they're not going to vote so we just can just continue to pursue uh, the older voter I think that would be a disaster uh, for the country I do think one interesting thing that's happening by the way that I was reading about the other day is that there's a growing divergence between the voting habits of young women and young men. Young women, over the last decade, what's developed is a pattern of uh, of voting in which young women are more progressive, they've been on a more sort of liberalising journey, perhaps it's a bit of me too, I don't know what, Uh, they tend towards, you know, the Green Party or whatever, and that young men, particularly young white men, uh, are not on this liberalising journey you know, to the, in, in, in the same way or to the same extent. Indeed, there's a, there's a sort of growing tide of resentment uh, amongst young men and that they're actually turning, leaning more towards, 
you know, Reform UK. They're going more towards the right. And I was very struck, somebody saying to me the other day, uh, that in the United States there's a large, surprising proportion of young people who are voting for Trump. So something is happening amongst young people uh, and something may be happening between young men as opposed to young women and it could develop as quite an electoral phenomenon. I'm just going to say something that you probably will all think I'm joking, but I'm deadly serious, which is that I think people should get votes from birth. I think there is no good reason to disenfranchise the under-18s at all. And I I would be happy for parents to hold that vote in proxy until their child is, say, 10. Uh, But the fundamental reality is that... Just to influence the agenda, you mean? So that we're voting in the interests of young people as well as older people? There is this, just this, there's about 11 million people who can't vote because they're under 18. And that skews what the democratic system represents the democratic system is literally only capable of of representing the views of the over 18s and the views of the over 18s about young people and actually i think that a radical suggestion that anyone who is a citizen of this country should be entitled to be represented in the kind of the demographic balance of where the where the votes lie would be transformative and it, it sure some people would vote just the way their parents voted and look Lots of people just vote the way their wife votes or the way their husband votes. Or, and lots of people are stupid and lots of people are old and lots of people are lazy. You know, we actually don't hand out votes on the basis of how clever you are or any kind of test of intellectual capability. Why should we uh, not di- not give a vote to, to people under 18? I just... Okay. So I, I, I have uh, favoured votes for 16-year-olds. Um, Coward truth is that the, the problem with your proposal is there's one thing that that whole group of people would share in common and it isn't you know intelligence or insight or whatever, but they're all dependents so you would be um shifting the electoral maths heavily away from taxpayers and working people towards dependents um and so are pensioners yes that's true i'm just saying you would you'd be adding yeah. to that issue um and I think that that's a problem uh, because I think that you know that people do vote for their interests, and if you if you overweight the electorate so that it consists of large numbers of people determining the tax and benefit system, most of whom are beneficiaries rather than taxpayers, you will um, you could easily go bankrupt quite quickly. Is the answer instead to take the vote off pensioners? I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, there was during the uh, the sort of worst of the Remain campaign or the post post Brexit Remain. Well, <laughs> you know, afterwards, when when everyone's like, oh, let's just pretend this didn't happen and move on. And they said, oh, but it's good because all of the Brexit voters are dead already. And it got all a bit unpleasant and people started to suggest that because young people had voted to stay in the European Union, old people had voted out, somehow old people I don't know that you should weight their vote by life expectancy, you know, and or just or just take the votes away from them uh, on the basis of how many minutes they had left to live. It just in the end, we're all equal. We're all people. Maybe we should give taxpayers two votes, Danny. Okay, so here's another. There's there's another probing. 
this question. So if the argument for people, young people voting is that you know, every aspect of the electorate ought to be summarised, what about the fact that there are lots of people yet to be born who have votes, uh, who, who require votes in order that we protect the future? This is great. You know, so Absolutely. What, what I'm saying is that, you know, you I think... You them the vote. You need to give the reason, them the reason why you, well. the reason well, why no. you have to, why you had to say you'll laugh at me before putting Probably together, which, by the way, by the way... You know, by the way, was by the way was a thought provoking proposal. Don't be goaded, so Polly. Uh, we did not, really well. We, t- we we didn't. You thought we were going to snigger at the beginning, and we didn't. No, now, I'm not. now I'm advocating votes okay. for ghosts. So I, I'm just. <laughs> you are ludicrous, Matt. Whether I, I don't actually fully disagree with you. I think it's an interesting. I think thing. Danny has a really important point that you know builds on the theory of effective altruism and the idea that in fact we should be considering uh, future generations. Wales did an interesting thing. You know, we have an older person's commissioner, a young person's commissioner is actually in Wales. They had a future generations commissioner who uh, made the case for and intervened on policy issues in order to protect those unborn. Um, Because that is different from the dead, Matt, due to the linear nature of time. Right. (laughs) It it is not possible, I'm afraid, for me to affect the quality of life with the decisions I make today of your great grandma. I'm afraid she's already dead. The other thing that Polly left out was otters. (laughs) So (laughs) what about sentient beings who aren't human? human. Well, okay, but the the, the truth is, you know, people, maybe my dog could vote because we can obviously vote. I can get on with votes for dogs. (laughs) Dogs should definitely have a vote. This is where what I'm trying to say is you do yeah. need basically you do need a degree of common sense to intervene at some point, and I suspect it intervenes at below the point. Right, I'm going to be that would, common sense right now and intervene because <laughs> I think you made an interesting point and we've completely belittled it, and I think we should probably turn, move on. You didn't belittle it. I think I proved my point, okay. and nobody is giving votes to ghosts. Ghost dogs. I think I appear to take it very seriously. Yes, Thank you, you very much. You. I appreciate that. Right, let's move on. Here is a question from Lyon. Hello, Matt, Peter, Policy and Daniel. Long time listener, first time voice recorder. I'm Ryan from the Tory Lib Dem battleground of Yeovil and I now live in the Tory safe seat of North Dorset. The question for the podcast is in relation to exit polls. What happens when they come in? What is the HQ responses? Do you get any a word beforehand? I would really love to know. Keep up the great work and, uh, yeah, hopefully I will hear from you soon. Thank you, Ryan, a good West Country listener. Who wants to talk about exit polls? Because some of you must have been on air when they come in. Two minutes before the 2019, I was sitting in a room. There was just three of us, myself, Pretty Patel and John McDonnell. And I thought, I'm going to watch the exit poll with these people. That would be great, great fun. And then just at the last minute, they got whisked into the studio and they heard it in there while I sat in the waiting room. On your uh, own. Yeah, on my own. So it wasn't quite the best. <laughs> and then Marc Francois came in just to complete the picture. But the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they are. I mean, those exit polls. That, definition of great fun. No. Uh, doing a lot of work. <laughs> the they are amazing moments. Those when you when you watch them, particularly since they've become so incredibly accurate. Because don't forget, in '92 when they came in. Um, it wasn't they weren't as accurate you know it was wrong actually the 92 um exit poll so but since 
you know, 2010. So I was, I was um, in in ITV with Owen Jones and Phil Collins, various other people when the when the 2015 exit. With the benefit of the tape, uh, Peter just grimaced. At the, uh, <laughs> the 20, the 2015. I'm not sure it was the mention of Owen Jones or Phil Collins. <laughs> the 2015, <laughs> the 2015 uh, result. You know. It, exit poll came and of course that was actually an underestimate the conservatives did better but it was it was out of line with where people thought it would go although actually not in fact funnily enough where phil collins had thought it would go he thought that would happen my most unnerving exit poll was before 92 it was in 87 and i was uh, in my uh, office on polling day seven o'clock at night telephone goes and it's a very well-known bbc journalist can i name him uh, yes i can the late Vincent Hanna, who was a great sort of election sort of guru and by-election king. And if only said, Peter, she said, uh, it's Vincent here. And I said, oh, hi, Vincent. She said, how are you? I said, oh, I'm fine, thanks very much. I was feeling absolutely just like death. He said, are you sitting down? I said, yes. I wasn't actually. I was standing up. But I thought we might hurry along this conversation. Another, <laughs> Another piece of spin. And uh, he said... Um, Can't believe anything. I think it may be time for Plan B. I thought, God, what the hell is Plan B? Scratching my head. And he said, um, we've had an early inkling uh, of the uh, exit poll. And it looks as if it could very well be Tories lost their majority, a hung parliament, and Neil Kinnock could be going to Buckingham Palace tomorrow morning. And I said, Vincent, whatever you do, please don't mention this to Neil, because <laughs> the disappointment is going to be crushing. I can assure you, he won't be off to Buckingham Palace tomorrow. If we're very, very lucky, we've come as sort of a reasonable second. He said, well, we'll see. Dust down plan B. Wow. And you were, you were right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was pretty obvious, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, we knew what was going on on the ground. I think at the core of the question is, you know, are, are we experiencing this as kind of political campaigners in live time with normal human beings at home on their sofa? To which the answer is yes. I mean, you, do, you don't know what it is until... Mm. until it's there and and certainly in the hold on Paul, unless you're a conservative because george osborne i gather has admitted that on two occasions they oh, had really? forewarning uh, of the which uh, were they exit really poll. I th apparently 2015 perhaps i don't know what the other one you didn't tell i mean I, i'd be surprised with that it, it's certainly in 2015 you know our our expectations as the Lib Dems was that we were going to lose quite a lot of seats, but nowhere near as many well, Paddy as... Ashton famously said he'd eat his hat. He did say that he would eat yeah. his hat. I think he then... Did he then eat, like, a chocolate hat? A chocolate or hat a, or a pasty hat or some cheating. sort of... It's not a hat. Surely. Because he said... Oh, in fact, yeah, Yeovil. Yeah. Right, that's where the question yeah. came from. But never promise to eat a hat. Don't promise I mean, to eat a hat. That's that's just basic politics, right? <laughs> <laughs> We've ticked off a lot of things there. Um... Dog, uh, votes for ghost dogs and don't eat hats. Uh, right, well, let's finish off there because apparently there are other podcasts, not just our podcast, How to Win an Election. There's also a podcast called Off Air with Jane and Fee. Uh, Jane, Jane Garvey and Fee Glover, who are on Times Radio in the afternoons. And they booked a high-profile guest to go on and discuss their work. And uh, that person was asked 
because they work at a university when not doing this other job. And it was asked, do the young people take an interest in politics? Would they know? Do they listen to how to win an election? The young people that this person works with. And this is what they said. So I expect there are lots of people who have enough political history to know that they really, really hate Peter Mandelson and others who might deeply love him. Mm. Are you enjoying doing the podcast? I it am. It sounds like you are. Yeah. It's Well, it's lovely. Um, uh, I think I think Peter it considers me an oddity. Um, <laughs> How does that manifest itself? Well, he just sometimes looks a bit surprised when I tease him. He thinks of me as a very young creature. I'm not very young. I'm in my mid-40s. But nevertheless, to a... I guess no. What's what's the male version of a grand dame? I don't know, but that's what he is, isn't he? You obviously know a lot more radio than I do, but like people who talk over each other are really annoying, and so finding a way to elbow your way into the conversation without interrupting or being the shouty one is genuinely difficult. I think you know Matt Chorley does a great job. He's brilliant at trying to <laughs> remind us to, you know, make space for the other. I think. Peter and Danny have such amazing stories. And also they live in a different world from me. They have dinner parties with all sorts of famous people. And I I don't, but that's okay. I don't mind being the also ran. Matt Chorley does a great job. He's brilliant. Matt Chorley does a great job. He's brilliant. Matt Chorley does a great job. He's brilliant. Some sort of some sort of fault. Some sort of oh no, that's literally how it went down. <laughs> Ghastly sucking up to Matt. Anyway, Polly, do you want to come to dinner? <laughs> well, we definitely want to go to Danny's house. He thinks an idea of fun is John McDonnell and Pretty Patel. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me, Matt, Charlie, yeah. that if you were to, you would not find it fun to watch the election night poll, no, exit poll, in right. the same room as Pretty Patel and John and McDonald at the same... Of course you of would. Of course you would. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember being here when the 2017 Times Radio Towers, uh, where, where the 2017 exit poll dropped. And everyone in the room just sort of let out an involuntary noise and then fell about laughing because it was the one that showed that Theresa May had yeah. gone to all this trouble and lost yeah. her majority. And it was just... I was surprised. It was the one that Every, ruined my Disney World holiday. Everyone was surprised at that, at that outcome. But I, I, if, at the beginning but of the campaign... No, at the beginning, no, at the beginning of the campaign... Well, nothing changed. Nothing no, wait, changes. At nothing the beginning of the difference. campaign, <laughs> I would have been completely surprised by it. Yeah. But not by the end of the campaign. I thought by the end of the campaign, it was, it was kind of obvious fun. that that was a very likely thing. By the end of the campaign, yeah. um, because of what had happened. It so was I, was a bit, I was a bit surprised people thought that that was... You know, were, were amazed by it. I was... I thought it was just a confirmation of what we'd begun to appreciate, which was a big, you know, which was a big and unprecedented move in, in an election campaign. So the big test then of your appearance with Jane and Fees, are there any listeners at your university who listen to How to Win, who should now come up to you and tell you all about it? What? It's a good test. Well, because they asked you, does anyone at your university listen to How to Win and you didn't seem oh, very see. Oh, I see. Well, I, I, I so don't... This, so this don't. is a test now. Uh, some of my colleagues do, oh, but I mean, the question was about, you know... The young people. The young people. They've probably got better things to do. They're probably on TikTok. Um, I, I'm sorry, I, I, that was not a slur. <laughs> a slur to podcasting or live radio, which obviously I profoundly love. Yeah. Uh, but Maybe we need to get Peter on TikTok. But the real a objective... Whole new generation. The real objective was to reach women. Yeah. Women. Uh, because, like, Fee and Jane, that is my demographic. Like, all of my sort of friends, my university friends, are, like, big lovers of that amazing podcast and community. And and I think those people should also love politics. Yeah. So, yeah, 
trying to be a bridge. That's what we're here for. We love Jane and Fee. I had a lovely couple of weeks ago. We had uh, we went out for cocktails. Oh my god! Yeah, I'd rather have that than dinner with <laughs> John McDonald. You could definitely could not have broadcast the conversation we had. Uh, right, let's finish off then. One final uh, uh, question, comment. It's, it's a, this is a proper more of a comment than a question. Uh, this is from Hannah from Pinner. Do you know her, Danny? Probably yes. <laughs> I think I do know who that is. Says hi, <laughs> hello, Matt. Hannah. Hi, I'm Matt. Peter, Polly, and Danny. In my because we were talking about the bromance between David Cameron and Nick Clegg and putting oh, together yeah. an IKEA cabinet. In my husband's speech at our wedding, he declared that he knew we were right for each other when we were able to build a piece of IKEA furniture together without fighting or wanting to kill each other. So I think Nick Clegg helping David Cameron with his IKEA furniture is a perfect example of their bromance. Love the podcast, as do the A-level politics students I teach. Yeah, okay. Oh, then I do know who it is. So that's Russ. <laughs> <laughs> I know Nick Clegg, and I do not believe for one second that he is capable of building a piece of IKEA furniture. <laughs> I, no, no. Does anyone make a so yeah. I, I, I cannot actually vouch for Nick Clegg's involvement in it, but I can vouch for the fact that David Cameron built them. Uh, I was there he showed me them just after he'd finished them uh, and i because i remember that when people at that point were saying that he was about to call another election um because he would then to get and i said well you know i've just been in his flat and he's building he's putting in bookshelves so i think it's unlikely he's preparing to leave uh 10 downing street very quickly um so i i think um i can vouch for that i cannot vouch for nick clegg's involvement did you ever help gordon put together any ikea furniture peter uh, no, I helped him on one or two occasions to put together a cabinet. Oh, oh. Very good. oh. Quite a few loose nuts in those as well. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, Hannah's test of being that uh, being able to put together IKEA furniture without fighting or want to kill each other is a test of a good marriage. I mean, by my experience, no one would be married if that was um, the, uh, the test you had to pass. Well, that was a lot of fun. I think we covered a lot of ground there. If you want to send in more questions, email howtowinatthetimes.co.uk, howtowinatthetimes.co.uk, or if you just want to tell us that you're enjoying the podcast. Don't forget, if you see Danny in the street, do gargle at him. Uh, if you are a student at uh, Polys University, tell her uh, um, that you listen to the podcast. And if Peter tells you he's sitting down, he's almost certainly not. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I'll be back. This was How to Win an Election. Mm-hmm.